the job interview. That is to say, the 30-minute let's get acquainted interview is worthless as a predictor of anything. Welcome to the On Wisdom Podcast with Igor Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. Today, we are very excited to have a special guest with us, Richard Nisbet. Richard Nisbet is the Theodore M. Newcomb Distinguished Professor of Psychology Emeritus at the University of Michigan. He is the recipient of the Distinguished Scientific Contribution Award from the American Psychological Association and the Gold Medal Award for Lifetime Mentorship from the Association for Psychological Science. Among his many achievements in psychology, he is perhaps best known for his work on the actor observer bias. He is also the author of several books, the most recent of which is the autobiographical Thinking, a memoir. And we are going to be speaking a lot about that today. Richard, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Igor, I would love for you to tell us a little bit of background. This is not your first meeting with um, Professor Nisbet. No, it is not. And I was thinking about this recently. When was the first time we met, Dick? <laughs> and this was probably uh, 2005 in the fall when I knocked on Richard Nisbet's door as an exchange student from Germany oh. and said that, hey, do you need an extra assistant? And uh, Dick Nisbet foolishly agreed to, to <laughs> take on this free labor assistant. And the rest is history. No, we've known each other for quite a while. I should say that Igor, when he popped into my office, he immediately made an impression on me that this guy could be a really, really good psychologist. Now, that's not good inferential behavior on my part, <laughs> but it was correct. <laughs> Can you remember any of the couple of things that stood out that, you, that made you think that? Well, he was just so eager. I mean, <laughs> he, was, he was really in it and mm -hmm. uh, and remained that way all the way through graduate school i mean and, and created that same impression on everybody i'm saying wow this guy he he's a he's bright-eyed and bushy-tailed <laughs> as we said i think if we put that in latin that could be the grossman family motto <laughs> <laughs> that's good to know I, i'm fascinated to hear his story you know or the origin story of Igor Grossman so thanks for that I'm going to dive in with some um, questions about the book I've really enjoyed reading the book it has a, a very sort of bold title thinking a memoir and I'm going to go right back to the beginning so I would love if you could just kind of set the stage and tell us a little bit about how you became interested in psychology specifically because in the early part of the book it's evident that you have this curiosity uh, across a, a whole range of fields. You're doing acting, you're, you're on all sorts of adventures, jumping into rivers. I would love to know what it was that kind of made you go, you know, of all the things I could, all the paths I could follow, psychology, that's for me. Well, actually, it was uh, a bolt of lightning. Uh, okay. I, I read the, a primer of Freudian psychology, uh, and I knew... Okay, that's it. I know what I'm going to do. This was at the age of 15, and, and I never looked back. Uh, one of your questions, now I, I know, is going to be, what else would I have done? And I'm, yeah. afraid, I'm afraid I would, have, I would have been miserable. That's what I would have done, <laughs> because it was so clear to me that this, was, this fit my interests and probably my talents. 
right? So it was psychology or nothing. Right. Right. If you, if you had to just force yourself to say, you know, you would have had to have done something. You could, unfortunately, you couldn't have done nothing. Well, I, I would have, I would like a, a lot of people, uh, a novelist, you know. Okay. Uh, but there was, at the time, first time I thought about doing that, and for a long time thereafter, it never occurred to me that I, there was no evidence really that I could, that I could do that. So it, it's a very good thing I ended up being able to be a psychologist. And you did acting as well. Would that, would that have been something you would have liked to have done a bit more of? Yes. Well, the anecdote that's in the book starts with the fact I did do a, a fair amount of acting in high school. And I was in the lead in a play in the one act uh, play content. You know, I was the rag picker in the Mad Woman of Shiloh, if that means anything to any of your listeners. Okay. And I did my part. I acted. I sat down being quite self-satisfied that I'd done a terrific job, which didn't right. surprise me. And uh, and I watched the other major high school, their one act play. And within five minutes, I was humiliated oh. because the guy who played the their lead was clearly the genuine article. I mean, he was a fantastic actor. Right. Uh, and he turned out to win the Academy Award <laughs> for okay. his role in, in Amadeus 30 right. years later. Okay. Fair enough, I'd say. Don't feel bad about that. <laughs> Not anymore, but it's no. certain, and lucky, lucky because I, I, might have, I might have said, oh, well, I could probably be an actor. But no, I, I actually couldn't have. So maybe that was a lucky lesson to have early on. Yes. I suppose it could have saved you decades. <laughs> right. um, I'm I'm really interested to to ask you about you. So you have I don't know if you would consider this a formal autobiography, but it's definitely autobiographical. I would say that's would that be fair? Sure. I mean, roughly the first quarter of it <clears throat> yeah. is mostly just narrative about a life. Yeah. So there's this kind of idea in autobiographical memory research about the reminiscence bump that we don't necessarily remember all stages of our life with sort of equal lucidity. Some some of them sort of jump out a bit more vividly. And now you've kind of been through the process, you know, of looking back over your life. And I'd be interested to know what your thoughts um, are about that now. So you've been through the actual experience and and, you know, any insights from having done it? Well, it is interesting how many, there's a certain repertoire of memories I have. Right. Some, some of them, it's obvious why they would be important and I would remember them. Others, not obvious at all why it would be important. I don't know why I've been carrying, carrying them around for decades. Does it seem like certain, is it kind of by decade or by, you know, you'll, you'll remember one placement at a university more clearly than another, or is it sort of just ran, sort of scattered across equally across the sorts of history of your life? Well, actually, the 60s and 70s are more vivid to me than the 80s, 90s, or the early uh, 21st century. But, I mean, there are exceptions, of course, but... <clears throat> I mean, it's it, the, the personal memories of the, of the 80s. I, ju I just don't have that many. I mean, it wasn't, there was nothing new. I mean, right. college was new, graduate school was new, yeah. teaching my first institution 
It was new. I was just sort of humming along. Uh, right, right. At Michigan at that stage. Yeah. Before we get to the pressing issues in psychology, I actually have a clarification question about the acting, Dick. And <laughs> here's the question that's just occurred to me. Well, you say that, okay, it's good that I didn't become an actor. But you did become an actor to some extent, maybe as a proxy, but not maybe not, you know, acting for an Academy Award. But didn't you act when you were in graduate school as a confederate in some famous oh, studies? Yes, right. That was a Latine and Darley study. They're the guys who showed that the likelihood of helping someone in distress would be precise. The likelihood that any given individual who is witness to a, what looks to be a situation where someone needs helping, the likelihood of any individual helping goes down with the total number of witnesses to that. Oh, right. Uh, so it actually, actually, it doesn't that much affect the likelihood that you'll be helped. It just affects greatly the likelihood that any particular individual will. And the, one of their studies, probably the best known, was where there are several New York University students discussing for their personal lives over the intercom. And the subject thinks that there are no other people except him and, and, and the victim, who happened to be me. <laughs> and or there's the witness and one other person or several other people or many people. And this guy, namely me, starts to have what sounds like it must be an epileptic fit. And um, some people come immediately, dash out of their booth and to help this guy. Some people never help. And it isn't as if they don't care or they know they're in a study. Often they're quite shaken by it. I mean, mm. this, this poor guy, oh my God, well, schmuck, do something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and they're likely to if they think they're the only one. And they're much less likely if they think there's somebody else who mm. could do it. Let George do it. Yeah. I, I've thought about this kind of concept before. And, you know, like if you're on a train and someone's getting, you know, hassled maybe by some ruffian on the train, or maybe there's a medical situation when someone's ill. And I suppose the when you look around, there's more people there. You, the, the probability that someone else is more qualified than you or in a better position to help seems to go up. Whereas if it was just me, you know, I'd think, okay, well, I don't know that much about medical care, but it's only me. So I'm better than nothing. Do you think that's part of it? Yeah, that sounds right. Actually, I'm not sure I've thought of it quite that way in the past. But yes, I, I, I do think, you know, it's, you, you come up with excuses. Yeah, um, I, that's for sure. <laughs> that's my excuse. Um, do you, did you ever feel bad about, um, you know, tricking these poor test subjects with your acting skills? Oh, no, it's part of a, a social psychologist's <laughs> charmed life that they can tell people lies uh, with impunity. And there's, and you're doing good, actually. Um, okay. Igor, have you ever had to uh, get involved in any of these acting shenanigans in your past? Just a little bit, but uh, not as severely as Dick, I think. I mean, mine were more modest. Uh, uh, ethics uh, committees uh, were instituted 
and prevented us from doing the more extravagant versions <laughs> of what has happened in the 60s. Uh, right. I think a Dick's generation prevented us uh, from engaging in uh, uh, severe forms of deceptions. I think uh, mm -hmm. the, the famous Milgram experiment led to institutional review boards, and they are very much against engaging in all sorts of additional deceptions. Uh, so mm. not as much, but some. It, actually, on the Milgram experiment, it, the, the IRBs came much after uh, those studies. And it's certainly the case that people did criticize Milgram for doing something quite unpleasant to people. I mean, mm. people had to face the fact that they they were apparently causing severe damage to another human being. Right. Uh, and But I don't know any psychologist, personally, at the time, who thought that that was an unethical thing to do. And the way I, the analogy I like to make is, you know, medical researchers all the time are doing things to people that, that are inconvenient, painful, or worse, be, because they're... Uh, control subjects in an experiment. I mean, you cut up on somebody's knee, uh, telling them they're doing knee, sur knee surgery, and this is going to make them all better, and then you sew them up, and nothing has been done except the cutting and the sewing. But we don't regard that as unethical. I mean, we say, you know, everybody has an equal chance to be one of these people in a control group or an experimental group. Mm. So, you know, it, everybody had, you know, in theory, an equal chance of being mm. in, in uh, Milgram's study. Now, if there had been minimal knowledge gain, you know, then it would have been wrong, wrong for him to continue it. If he felt like nothing's going to come of this, really, except making people miserable. But I think the knowledge gain from Milgram is colossal. Uh, uh, no social psychology study comes close. You simply can't think about human beings in the same way once you know what we are capable of mm -hmm. in the name of. Of, uh, of duty or obedience or going along with the flow. Okay, so let's move on to another topic here. And uh, you mentioned that the 80s was kind of not the most exciting period, maybe, in when you think back at your uh, life. But in the 70s, there were a few really exciting things uh, that happened in psychology. And one of them was about the area of research on human judgment and errors in human judgment. So I'll, I would like you to take a step back, Dick, and immerse yourself in the research on human judgment in psychology of that time. What was the field like before you sort of decided to focus on it? How did researchers study human judgment? Okay, that's an easy question. It wasn't studied. <laughs> I mean, it, the field was invented, actually, at the University of Michigan in the mathematical psychology program. And one of the first students in that program, by the way, was Amos Tversky. And prior to that, remember, psychology, American psychology, was heavily behaviorist. I mean, so, you know, that kind of all-in-the-head stuff, thinking that just wasn't the sort of thing that that people were doing. And the first I ever encountered of that kind of work was probably 
in the very early 70s with one of these people from the math psych program at Michigan who was examining how good people are at being Bayesian statisticians, that is, modifying their hypothesis uh, appropriately in response to additional evidence. And he did really a lovely piece of work. He would give people one piece of evidence suggestive of a hypothesis. For example, that nation A and nation B might be going to go to war. Or he would give them two pieces of evidence, or three, or 10, to see if their overall belief tracked the value of the evidence that they were being given. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if you have two pieces of evidence, you ought to think it's more likely that there will be war. Do you change your belief as much as you should? Now, obviously, if you have two pieces of evidence, it's more likely that there's going to be war. But is, is it twice as likely? Probably not. But So there's a question of how much should you change it. And what he found is that people are conservative patients. That is, they don't change their belief in the hypothesis as much as they should as the evidence keeps growing. This, by the way, all depends for some of your readers who, who have concern about, is this evidence independent or, or dependent? And it's rigged so that it would seem to be independent. So, mm -hmm. uh, so you can, and under those circumstances, you can be pretty precise about what ought to happen to believe. Mm -hmm. So people turn out to be conservative Bayesians. And I, I found that extremely exciting because I was starting to do work on reasoning. And here's a guy who's got a completely objective standard against which to judge people's judgment. And I, I thought that was terrific. Kahneman first did not, by the way. You probably don't know this, Igor, but uh, they, Tversky, who had just gotten his degree in the same place that this guy was, who's Ward Edwards, by the way, was his name, um, right. went back to Israel where Kahneman was teaching and said, Oh, my professor has found this fascinating fact that people are conservative Bayesians. And Kahneman said, huh, people are not any kind of, of Bayesian. They're not any kind of statistician. And in that, as in all, lots of other things I might point out, Kahneman was wrong. People are statisticians. They're just not as good as they could be. So let's talk a little bit about that phase in your life. A lot of uh, exciting developments start to happen in the 70s. You mentioned Amos Tversky, you mentioned Danny Kahneman. Uh, your own work, both you and Lee Ross, have started contributing towards research on human inferences, as you called it later in the book. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with this remarkable individuals. Let's start maybe with your collaborations with Lee during that time in late 70s and early 80s. Right. That was the, my first encounter with Lee uh, was my last year of graduate school at Columbia and his first year. And it was clear to me this guy is just incredibly bright. And so I I hung around him a lot, and I would come down from Yale to New York in part, large part, to talk with Lee about 
anything, but we began to zero in on questions of reasoning, attribution, theory, and statistical aspects of reasoning. So, for example, people's appreciation or lack thereof of understanding of the law of large numbers. And my first research I did that was uh, looking for reasoning errors in that sense, other than just causal attribution errors, was, was statistical. And Lee was interested in that, although he didn't do much along those lines. Although he did do one of the best, most interesting studies in psychology, which I don't know even if you would have known about without reading my book, Igor. He looked to see, well, a psychologist named Seligman uh, had shown that whether people see a given association in the environment, uh, given correlation, is enormously dependent on how plausible it is to them that that would that um, association would be there. And he talked about preparedness. I mean, there are some associations we're, we're prepared to see. And unfortunately, we often see them, even if they're not there. Uh, we just think they're probably there and we get a little bit of evidence uh, and then mistakenly uh, see an association that isn't there. Or the other way around. Uh, there is an association that that may be a very strong one in a statistical sense, but we don't recognize uh, that it's there. I mean, for example, I, mean, this, the, <laughs> I love the animal research on this. Pigeons will starve to death before they will discover that not picking at a light, not pecking at a light, will give them food. Right. Pigeons haven't made it this far uh, by thinking that they can get food by not pecking. Right. <laughs> so, but so Lee's experiment was, oh, look, let's look at completely arbitrary associations. You have people say their name and then sing a note at a particular du duration. So my name is Adner or my name is uh, Zachary. The... Mm -hmm. Okay, so the further along in the alphabet your in initial is, the longer the note uh, that you hold. And it turns out associations have to be extremely large before people will see that because they have no theory of such a thing. I mean, it's, so it's just very sobering, uh, that study, to see how bad we are at detecting associations between stimuli which were perfectly salient and perfectly clear. We just don't see the association. Did you know about that study before um, you saw it in my book, Igor? I don't think so. Yeah. No, people don't know it. <laughs> it's so important. Right. And so, so you've been friends with uh, Lee for a while. And then at some point in the 70s, you decided to write something together. So how, that came how did that come about? Well, both of us were working on uh, causal attribution. Uh, and we were finding errors in people's reasoning. <clears throat> so, for example, in order to test whether people can identify what stimulus is producing their autonomic arousal, I gave them a steadily increasing series of shocks. Tell me when you can feel it, when it first becomes painful, when it's too painful to continue. And before I did that, I told, I told them that they're going to take a pill which will cause 
we don't use the word, physiological arousal. It will make your heart rate become faster and your breathing become irregular and you may feel your palms are somewhat sweaty. Uh, you may feel uneasy in the pit of your stomach. This is the symptoms that people get from being given electric shock. And we anticipated that people would attribute their arousal symptoms actually caused by the shock to the pill, which isn't causing it at all, and therefore find the shock less aversive. Mm. And to my astonishment, I mean, not only the Christmas tree was spectacularly true. People who thought they had a pill that was causing arousal took four times as much amperage as subjects who didn't know that. So, and then I was beginning to look at people's attributions for <clears throat> why people uh, carry out certain actions. For example, we asked women at Yale if they would be willing to be a guide for the spouses of potential benefactors, and we would pay them in today's terms, like six or seven dollars an hour. Others, we, we said we would be able to pay you 20 or 25 dollars an hour. And what's the likelihood that they will uh, participate in this? Well, as you might expect, they're much more likely to do it if there's much more money offered, several mm -hmm. times as much money offered. But we have observers watching these women being asked to do this and then either doing it or refusing to do it. And we ask them, oh, uh, this woman you just saw, how likely do you think it is that she would volunteer to help out uh, children uh, who have been injured uh, in, a, mm -hmm. in a piece of work by the Red Cross? They are massively influenced by whether the woman they saw volunteered or not. They are completely uninfluenced by the amount of money offered. It, it's just, oh, if she volunteered to do this, I, I get it. She's a volunteerer. Mm. Well, no, actually, not really. No evidence for that, uh, which the person should have been able to recognize because it's right. clear that there's money involved. So anyway, we, we were collecting these attribution errors, and then we started looking at, a la Ward Edwards, at uh, judgments where you could push people's responses up against some kind of formal definition of what they should be doing, statistical ones. And one thing that both of us were struck by is how readily we make an inference about someone from a single action. I mean, or how readily we make an inference about all, all, any dang thing given totally inadequate evidence. And contrary-wise, how frequently we fail to make an inference, which is really obligatory, because we've been told a, a evidence which says that particular thing should happen. Let me make, give that, make that concrete. Um, we well, you can you can use the Milgram experiment. Actually, I think we did do one study using the Milgram experiment. We said we gave them the details of what goes on in the in the uh, Milgram experiment, and then we asked them. We give them some information, individuating but non-informative information about a particular person. I mean, it's what his mother did for a living, what his major is, and so on, and. And now we ask them, what do you think, how do you think this guy would have behaved in the Milgram experiment? How much 
shock do you think he would deliver to this poor victim? And some of the subjects, we, we give the data, we say, oh, 80% of them go all the way to uh, the point where the subject is the, the victim is pounding on the wall saying, please, I have a heart condition. Don't continue. 80% <laughs> will continue to that, to that point. And we give them that information or we don't. They make the same prediction about this guy they've just read about. Although no, this guy would not, would not do it. Mm. So wait a minute. I just told you 80% of the people in the study mm. did it. And you say, this guy is not going to, yeah, yeah, he wouldn't do it. I mean, because after all, his mother was, was what? A librarian. I mean, People whose mothers are are librarians don't <laughs> do damage to other people. I mean, it's it's completely unacceptable inference that people are making. So we infer a lot uh, from one single piece of evidence, and we refuse to infer something from a lot of evidence. So there's a statistical aspect to this. I mean, it's the the refusal to utilize base rates for any kind of event, for example, human behavior, what percent of people do do X, and a great readiness to make an inference based on really um, much too feeble evidence. So this the book was full of this kind of thing. I mean, comparing people's reasoning to the standards where we, we, we know that what they should be doing. And so we know they're wrong. So we know we've identified an error in judgment. And the book is full of it. Could I just, if I could just ask a quick sort of like, like a side question, I suppose. Did, at the time, did you have a sense that something significant was happening? Like you were on the frontier of a new field or, or was it sort of just sort of you don't really think like that. You're just doing the project in front of you. Was there an excitement around this is this is a big field and we're here? Or do you only get that sense looking back? Well, I'm sure Igor is sitting there smirking. Thinking, of course he thought it was a big deal. He always thought whatever the heck he was doing was a big This is revolutionary. This right, is right, going right, to change. Right. That's just me. I told this to Tom Gilovich, by the way, who's a very, very good social psychologist, as mm-hmm. Igor knows. And uh, that's funny. You know, I always assume that what I'm doing is, you know, it's not much of a much. <laughs> it's a classic Tom. <laughs> yeah. It's just, I mean, he's a, a terrific psychologist. And, you know, it's, mm. If I did, if I was doing anything that he was doing, I would be telling the world that this is fantastic. This is revolutionary. Mm-hmm. To some extent, at the same time, you, when you talk about the book and the human inference, but also the memoir that we are talking about today, uh, you mentioned uh, Tversky and Kahneman that we already mentioned earlier in our conversation. And you mentioned your encounter with them. And obviously their, their contributions have also inspired and mutually inspired. And I think why, uh, it went both directions, uh, you and Lee. What was your relationship and what was the encounter the first time? Now, nowadays, uh, both Kahneman and Tversky are considered almost mythical figures in psychology. <laughs> and as with all mythical figures, I'm often a bit skeptical because there is often a human behind the myth. And what was your human experience with uh, these two legends? Well, it's interesting. Yeah, the, Amos, 
really was larger than life. I mean, there's the joke in the book, which I'm quite serious about, that meeting Amos Tversky was an IQ test. The quicker you realized he's smarter than you are, <laughs> the smarter you are. <laughs> and if you're, if you're sufficiently stupid, you never realize this guy is smarter than you are. So, uh, I mean, it's, it was just so striking. I think everybody had this experience. I mean, within minutes, you said, my God, this guy is so smart. And, and the other thing, and this doesn't necessarily follow, he was never wrong. I mean, about anything. <laughs> the Stanford Department of Psychology, where he spent much of his career, when he died, which was tragically early in his mid-50s, the Stanford Department of Psychology was paralyzed uh, because they had only one decision rule, find out what Amos thinks. <laughs> because no other individual, no other group of individuals was going was to have a better idea about what to do about any given wow. situation than, than Amos did. Now, Kahneman, and also I should say Amos was larger than life in the sense that he was, well, the great statistician Percy Diaconis says of him, there was a light coming out of him. Mm. And that's the way you felt about Amos. I mean, this guy is so had such a sunny disposition. He was so happy to be in the world and to be doing whatever he was doing now. And with you, my God. So so that was that was Amos. So smart, so sunny. And Kahneman, on the other hand, was not sunny. I mean, Michael Lewis and his book about the, the two of them, which is a fabulous book, by the way. I recommend to anybody. Yeah, I, I've, I've recommended this book to people who aren't psychologists. They have no interest mm -hmm. in psychology, and they think it's a fabulous book. It's just a, it's a description of these guys' career and their relation to each other. Is this and, the, the Undoing they, Project? Yes, that's, that's the name right. of it. Yeah. And Lewis says in there that people said, uh, Danny Kahneman is like Woody Allen, only without the humor. <laughs> I mean, it was a, you know, a sad sack, is, what, is the way many people regarded him. He was sort of a sourpuss, and you know, nothing was going to go right, and everything sort of wrong. And he was not, it took you a while. To realize how smart he was. And you never came to the conclusion that he was as smart as Amos, but he was the more creative of the two, which eventually I began to realize. And any, anybody who knew the two of them extremely well would say, yeah, without Danny, Amos would have been the world's greatest mathematical psychologist, period, instead of somebody who was capable of uh, winning the Nobel Prize in economics. <laughs> So, Fascinating. Economics thoughts, I should say, by the way, are more nearly Danny's than, than Amos, so far as I can tell. So I want to switch gears a tiny bit and still talk about reasoning and thinking, but a somewhat different aspect of your career, Dick. And specifically, at some point, you turned your attention to the area of research on intelligence. And in your memoir, you write that your work on intelligence was not the most interesting, but surely the most important. So can you tell us why do you feel that that's the case? 
Well, it's the most important because of all the issues I ever looked at, it is nothing more important than knowing, you know, where does intelligence come from? I mean, the intelligence, the people who in the intelligence business, the researchers, had managed to get it quite wrong, disastrously wrong <laughs> over the years. I mean, intelligence is largely a ge genetic matter. Early life experiences account for very little. Uh, school doesn't make you smarter. I mean, it, all of those things are just turn out to be completely wrong, demonstrably so. Mm. And I must say, it was like one day it suddenly occurred. I mean, I kept up with the intelligence literature. Of course, you study reasoning, you're going to know about the intelligence literature. I right. kept up with it. Uh, being dubious about some of it. But at, at some point, I began to realize this whole thing is a house of cards. The whole story there that was popularized in the bell curve by Charles Murray and uh, Richard Herrnstein. That whole story, so plausible, so well supported by data, seemingly well supported by data. It's just wrong. And it's terrifically important to know that actually you, young minds can be drastically influenced to be made more intelligent. And um, without school, you, you can't be smart. It's, it's, uh, I mean, <laughs> you would think that everybody would know that. Uh, but in, in fact, the, the, intel the intelligence folks just got it completely wrong. And I think for a reason <laughs> that's almost comical, IQ tests didn't test people on what they learned in school because, you know, that would be cheating. Let's find out how how what the raw smarts of this person are, uncontaminated right. by the environment, as if such a thing were possible. I mean, it, it, <laughs> it's lunatic, actually, but, but, but that's what the field held. And these were not stupid people, let me mm. point out. I mean, the people who, who laid down what was going to be the framework for understanding intelligence. I mean, Spearman, a brilliant statistician, a very good psychologist. Lots of very, very smart people. Match, they managed to get it wrong. So, so in, in fact, school doesn't much affect IQ score because IQ doesn't test, don't test anything you're taught in school. So anyway, so that's why it's important. Why is it not interesting? Well, I don't know, because it was just, it was a kind of a sleuthing thing uh, slowly dawns on me, you know, that, uh, that the, the story here is, is quite wrong, but it's, in a way, it's not a shocking conclusion. I mean, if, if you told people, oh, guess what? Uh, the genetic story is uh, very substantially off base. They would say, oh, oh, okay, if you say so, Doc. <laughs> They're not going to be all that right. interested by it. Whereas other work I've done, for example, on, on uh, awareness of mental processes, hmm. uh, I started on this line of research showing not only can people be wrong about what goes on in their heads, but the truth is they have no damned idea what goes on in their heads. And that turned out to be easy to demonstrate that, you know, if you put people in a novel situation and they behave in a particular way, they're quite likely to get it wrong because right. they don't have any, any structure for understanding why people do what they do in that kind of situation. So. So to tell people, guess what? You have no ability to directly observe the workings of your mind. Mm. And one implication of that is you're going to be making mistakes all the time about what goes on in your head. That was revolutionary. It really was. I mean, it, we, we, the, 
nobody would have believed such a thing the day before they read the psych review paper that that I wrote with Tim Wilson. And after they, the psychologists who read it and absorbed it said, yeah, that's right. We don't really, we're not able to see what's on our mind. So that was exciting. That would, that's an example of something at, at the other end. I mean, it's also important, but it's, mm. but it's exciting. Uh, and it's not, as, it's not really as important as saying, guess, guess what? Shut up, intelligence guys. You can actually make people smarter. So try and make the world a place where that happens instead of saying that it can't happen. It's very, it's very disturbing, the idea that you have no idea why you're doing or thinking the things that you're doing and thinking. That almost seems more fundamental than intellig- um, intelligence to me. No, it is. It, well, I don't know. It's, it's, it's not as important in terms of its real-world implications, mm. although, I mean, it does have plenty of real-world implications. Mm. Right. Um, you know, if I don't know what the hell I'm, you know, doing, why I did it, you know, that's... <laughs> That has yeah. lots of consequences. I think you you said in the book that people often didn't have like one of the reasons why they couldn't accurately explain their internal uh, mental processes because they didn't have like any understanding of the kinds of processes that happen. So is that something like if people are brought up to speed, like if you study psychology a lot and you know how these kind of processes work, are people going to then be more accurate about explaining their thought processes? Absolutely, they can be. I mean, there were two types of people. I mean, psychologists, you know, they just, you know, okay. <laughs> they just mm-hmm. bowed and said, okay, you got it. Uh, I, I believe you. Some types of psychologists, that clinical psychologists, really rejected uh, because yeah. they thought they were in the business of showing people how to examine their mental processes. And they weren't. And uh, that paper makes it clear that you, you can't do that. What you can do is give people new theories about why people do what they do or why you do what you do. This particular person does what this particular person does. And so there was a lot of, a lot of reaction from them initially. Mm. And philosophers were the other, because stock and trade for philosophers, certainly for epistemologists, is to say, okay, this is what I think when I when I am given this kind of evidence and here's the way I think about it and so on. And I'm saying, no, no, (laughs) your introspections can't do you much good there. I mean, and uh, so that was, and there are lots of, I mean, what philosophers (laughs) said truly silly things in print trying to attack that. What I find remarkable, Dick, is that uh, you have this period on human inference, and then you have the period on intelligence. And in between, you squeezed in something entirely different, namely cultures, even though it makes sense to me why you would switch to intelligence after you've been embedded in this cultural milieu. So what prompted you to start looking at the culture questions? Was it just smart students, zeitgeist of the time? Some particular events in the 80s, early 90s? Oh, I'm sure it was the zeitgeist. I mean, in the 80s, I think, is when people discovered gender, race, uh, and class. And I got very interested in those things. And at some point, I began to realize, you know what? I mean, when I, when I came into the business, <laughs> uh, 
culture was something that stupid people studied. I mean, uh, it was, you know, the French like frogs and, and mm. we don't. I mean, or, you know, the, the Watusi believe X and we don't. I mean, mm. it just wasn't very interesting, just descriptive stuff. But I began to realize that the, the methodological tools that I had learned as a social psychologist at the knee of Stanley Schachter could be used to study culture. And I said, and I'm going to do it. I could think I had all kinds of, I mean, there's just limited numbers of cultural hypotheses that would interest the psychologists to study. So I decided I would start doing that. But there's this problem, right? I'm a, I'm a white male. And white males, anything they say about culture, uh, and they can, it can be dismissed because they're a white male and they're colonialism and so on. So mm-hmm. I said, well, you know, I actually know something bad about white males. <laughs> I'm going to study that and uh, hope that that gives me a, a cover for studying other kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So I showed that Southern whites are more likely to mm-hmm. uh, commit homicide than, <clears throat> than Northern whites. and. And I think I discovered why, which we can go into if you're interested. But but then I, I've always, you know, read widely. And I happened to read a, a book, I can never remember his name, a Japanese guy, you probably can remember it, or what the heck is his name? Fukuyama? Yes. And he says, look, you know, there are some drastically different ways of thinking of Eastern peoples, uh, and uh, they, they think differently from Westerners and, and they think differently from each other in the case of, for example, Indians versus Chinese. And I thought, I read it, so you know, that's interesting. I'm, I'm sure there's something to that. Dreaming exactly how much there was going to be to that. And in the early 80s, I gave a series of lectures at Beijing University. And there was this very bright undergraduate there who had only the dimmest grasp of English, but he was clearly really, really smart. And years later, he came to the University of Michigan to be a graduate student Mm. uh, to work with me. And after we'd been working together for a while, he said, you know, Dick, uh, you and I think completely different about the world. He said, oh, well, tell me more. And then he gave me a sketch version of what we actually ended up showing, including other terrific graduate students uh, like you, Igor. And the basic idea is that Westerners think about objects, what they can do with them, what their attributes are, what Mm -hmm. rules apply to them, Mm -hmm. while Easterners, at least East Asians, I would now say, think about relationships. They think about contexts. They think about the relationship between the object and its environment. And, and by PS, Westerners uh, use logic to think, or at least logic to demonstrate what they have thought. And that's quite foreign to East Asians. And I, you know, I, I, I didn't really believe that, but I thought, well, that's. That's highly testable. So we started testing it. <laughs> All turns out to be true and true to an extent that who could have guessed? I mean, Takahiko Masuda and I gave underwater scenes to Japanese students and to University of Michigan students and asked them what they saw. 
the Americans say, well, I saw three big fish uh, swimming off to the left. They had white bellies and pink stipples on their bellies and one mm. back fin. And the Japanese say, I saw what looked like a stream. Oh, the water was green. Uh, there were rocks and plants on the bottom. Uh, there were three big fish swimming off to the left. Mm. And that is, it's just, you know, I mean, they start with context. No American, virtually no American starts with context. Mm. Virtually all Japanese start with context. And the Japanese were able to report, uh, and we asked them what they'd seen, and, the, and they were able to report after 20 seconds all kinds of relationships. Uh, there was a snail on, on one of the plants, and they actually were able to report. 60% more information about the environment than Americans did, and 100% more information, twice as much about relationships inside those little scenes. And although you say, well, okay, that's what they're doing, uh, what are, you know, Americans must have picked up more information about these salient objects that they're concentrating so exclusively on, and that's not true. The Americans do give you no more information about the objects, the salient objects, than the Japanese do. And the Japanese are picking up relationships and contextual things that are just, you know, they're not part of what the Americans are perceiving. And so, I mean, some of the, some of the results, as you well know, because you, you, you demonstrated to me, Cork, some of them are just so big. It's, it's remarkable. And they're just, Really, really big effect, uh, and others are maybe not so big, but they're intriguing. Can I just dive in a super quick question? Just does it, you know, do you get any sense? And this is, I don't imagine there's any data on this, but just shooting from the hip a little bit, do you get any sense that certain ways of processing the world fit better with the uh, point the world is at? So, in the sense, like. If East Asians are more aligned to think, look at relationships and understand relationships, does that suggest they would that would serve them better in a, a more connected relational world that we might live in now, when everything's more connected than say a hundred years ago? Do you have well, any thoughts around that? Yeah, I love the question, and there's a great answer to it. Primatologists, Western primatologists, never saw any relationship between chimpanzees or rhesus monkeys or whatever, almost never saw any relationship uh, larger than the dyad, monkey A and monkey B. But Japanese primatologists saw chimpanzee politics. They saw very complicated interactions and differences in behavior of you know, one animal and, and another and context dependence. I mean, they saw... <laughs> they saw a hell of a lot of what was going on that mm. uh, that Westerners were quite blind to. So, mm. so yeah. So we're more interconnected. I don't know. Are we more interconnected now? I don't know. But if we were, <laughs> yeah, East Maybe. Asians would be would be much more likely to realize that. Right. That's fascinating. 
I mean, another fitting example is that, that Kropotkin uh, came up with the idea of homo responsibilis, whereas uh, the Western economists and biologists at that time were thinking about homo economicus. And so there's a dependent agent versus mm. the one who is constantly in relationships with others and who mm. is responsible and has to cooperate with others. Mm. Uh, that's also fitting this idea. But this yeah. is just like a small conversations here. So we discussed a number of different periods in your life, Dick. Which period or piece of work did you enjoy the most? Can you pick? Well, I, I think the most exciting was the work with Tim Wilson. Uh, and then uh, on consciousness, um, finding you know, how incredibly wrong we could be about what's going on in our heads. <clears throat> that was really exciting. But then, of course, the, the cultural work, too, was you know, so exciting. I mean, just discovering all these differences. Nobody really knew what they were. I mean, uh, a couple of philosophers or historians uh, had a, an idea of what these cultural differences might be, but demonstrating them and demonstrating how powerful they were and how well tied together they were with theory. I mean, right. sort of Context versus object. I mean, when, once you've got that idea, everything <laughs> falls into mm. place. One counterfactual for you, Dick. If you could duplicate yourself and had a parallel career in psychology, what other direction would you have taken? Teaching people how to be smarter. I mean, I, I just sort of dipped my toe in that. I mean, I did studies showing that you can teach people statistical reasoning. Uh, very easily, which, by the way, was a total shock to me because we were taught, we meaning psychologists of my generation, that you can't teach abstractions. You can only teach something about a particular stimulus and then something slightly different from that, a little bit of a generalization. And that was dogma in psychology until we did our work. And when I went back to look at it, it was pathetically undersubstantiated in research. I mean, there were a couple of gestures toward a couple of things that somebody said, well, it looks like they didn't learn the abstraction. So now we know that human beings can't learn abstractions. Mm -hmm. So I did the research teaching people how to reason statistically with the intent of showing that you couldn't teach people <laughs> reason statistically. <laughs> so, I, but I never, I didn't follow that up. I mean, there's so much to be done in educational psychology, and I, I would be, you know, delighted to, to do that, uh, to have had a career doing it. It's a very admirable goal. Another question. So you've done a lot of groundbreaking work on actor-observer biases and other biases that we already talked about, including misattribution of behavior to character versus situation. When you reflect on your own career path, how do you think about the situational versus dispositional forces at play? Well, uh, I love the question because it allows me to tell about a a demonstration at some some outfit that does human relation growth stuff. It may be, what was the name of it? Life Spring, I think. They have an exercise. They say, tell me the story of your life. And they don't use this word, but in dispositional terms. 
you know, I being the sort of person I am did this and it had that consequence and I being the sort of person I am responded in that way. So tell that story of your life, the dispositional story. And then tell me the, the situational story, the contingent story. A totally different story. Anybody can tell you, and they are totally, completely different stories, totally believable to the listener. <laughs> and, and, you know, they can't both be true because one, one, mm. the one leaves out the other. But, but in my own case, there are a couple of dispositions. I was energetic, ambitious, and curious. And those are good attributes for a scientist. They, they, they bode well. As you know, you're <laughs> uh, from your personal experience, but but the the contingent, and I must say, as I got older, the contingencies that that had effects on my life loom larger and larger and bigger and bigger. I mean, if I am a sheer accident that I went to Tufts instead of I don't know a much better school where I would have met lots of people who were smarter than me, and I said, oh, well, maybe I should. Maybe I should be a freelance writer or an insurance salesman or something. But I went to a place where you know it was possible for me to believe, hey, you know, I'm 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 really I'm really a whiz by comparison. So and then total accident that I would work with Stanley Schachter. I was meant to go to Harvard, where I desperately wanted to go, and work with Gordon Alport, whose work, you know, not that interesting. Uh, and he was an old man. And that was who there was, really, in social psychology at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, you know, by accident, a friend went to look at the, the Columbia Law School for the weekend. So I said, oh, I'll go with you. I got admitted to Columbia. I'm not going to go there. But, and then I met the person that was clearly by far the smart, smartest person I had ever met. Bill McGuire, social psychologist there, spent a tremendous amount of time with me. And I ended up, you know, talk, talking to people who said, yeah, go to Columbia, but not so much for McGuire, but for Stanley Schachter. So I did. And again, I mean, right. he was so much, so much the best person to work with. I have a question, probably three quickish questions, I suppose. But and it's interesting just putting it in the context of you saying, you know, if, you, if there'd been a duplicate Professor Nisbet out there, you would have looked at sort of finding ways to help people become smarter. You you actually wrote a book, like I think in 2015, Mindware, was that 2015-ish? I think so, yes. Yeah. Mindware Tools for Smart Thinking, which, you know, you're laying out what you think are useful tools that can help people think better. And for sort of the benefit of people that haven't read it, I, I really enjoyed it, by the way. If you just had to like pick one of those skills that you could sort of insert directly into the the head of the say the next generation or or your grandchildren is there one that you think is like one chapter or one skill that you think is really head and shoulders above the others well an extension of understanding of the law of large numbers which people understand perfectly well in any number of contexts but the the, pr- the principle is so much more broadly applicable than people mm-hmm. realize so so that would be, that's the kind of thing that's in the book. Not exactly telling you anything you didn't know in some sense, but saying oh, it's so much more powerful uh, concept than you realized. Can you tell us an example of something that it applies to that 
people might, you know, because you're talking about an extension of that idea, sort of a, a context that people would be surprised to to find that useful in that they're not familiar with. Well, my favorite example, this is something I use to shock people when I'm in the mood, <laughs> is that the job interview, that is to say the 30-minute let's get acquainted yeah. interview, is worthless as a predictor of anything. I mean, success in college and graduate school and medical school and law school, success in the military, right. success in business. I mean, it, it's it, the correlations run about 0. 0.10, which isn't literally zero, mm. uh, but it's and we but but we we you know if you think I don't <laughs> suffer from the belief that I can learn a lot about somebody in a thirty minute get acquainted mm. interview, I mean I do. Mm. And it's actually Kahneman has a wonderful example of what's wrong with our our reasoning in that interview situation. We fail to to treat it as if it were a sample from an enormous population of mm. events regarding this person. Instead, we think of it as a hologram. I mean, it's smaller than the person and fuzzier at the edges, but mm. you know, uh, and, and that's just hopelessly wrong. I mean, mm. it's I mean, what you can end up with from the interview is is learning absolutely nothing of any interest or value about the person. So, but yet you think that, yeah, that you have. That's so an interesting that's, way. Yeah. yeah, interesting to think of it as a sample of a, a huge set. Just it's half okay. an hour of their life. Okay, and you'll like this as a Londoner. Charles. Okay. <laughs> uh, first time I went to England, I spent 10 days in London, and it was a beautiful blue sky day. Day after day, balmy temperatures. Yep. And I came away thinking, you know, the English, they're such complainers, uh, <laughs> complaining how wet and nasty it is. I know, I think I know a little differently. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I got the appropriate punishment, however, because the next time I went to England was there again for about eight or 10 days. Mm -hmm. It never stopped raining the whole time. <laughs> That's brilliant. So, well, where did I now? But do you think it's, I'm not so stupid as to think that weather is always the same. I mean, mm -hmm. if somebody had said, do you think, Somebody had just simply said, "Hey, Dick, you think you think you should regard your experience in London as a sample of the mm. possible experiences?" Oh, yeah, I guess I should. Yeah, <laughs> but nobody was there to tell me that. Yeah, I'm just like, a, and it, I suppose responding to that idea of that the interview is useless. Of course, half an hour is not as good as 24 hours observation or a week's observation. But if you only have half an hour. What would you suggest people do with that half an hour that would be better? Read the dossier. <laughs> uh, okay. Pull out the folder and see what other people have said about this guy, what his employment record is, what his IQ score is. Mm. I mean, uh, and if you, <clears throat> you can predict behavior in these kinds of situations that I just described, occupations and so on, you can predict to the tune of a correlation of 0.4 or 0.5 which is no joke, you can greatly improve over the chance level. So, so mm -hmm. more importantly, and this allows me to say what a really telling thing about the interview, you shouldn't do the interview at all because you're not capable. Mm -hmm. It's like it's a, it's, a, it's a Ulysses kind of thing. Tie yourself mm -hmm. to the mast. Don't expose yourself to that small basis of, of, of 
small sample of behavior because you're going to let it have too much weight. Right. Interesting. Because you'd think, oh, well, why not have some more information? Surely it can't be damaging. But you're going to you're saying that, in fact, we'll weight it more than it should be weighted. So it will end up being detrimental to your judgment. Exactly. Huh. Often when I hear that from my colleagues, uh, we don't do that in Waterloo. At least we didn't until recently. Uh, but at uh, the University of Toronto, this type of interviews, a standard operating procedure for graduate school in psychology. And whenever I mention that the, the interviews should not be weighted, at least not as highly as people tend to be, given all the social psychological research, they say, but I want to figure out who is the weird one. Yeah, I know about the dossier. Yeah. I will keep the right. dossier. But like, but the, right. I want to see this person because what if they're the weird one? And then for the next five years, I'm on the hook or they're on the hook with me. Mm. Yeah. yeah, medical faculty, if you say you shouldn't interview, they say, well, you, you need to be able to find, is this guy a weirdo? Is he going to be somebody who's, you know, that could, couldn't be a good, this? oh, I said, you think you can figure that out from 30 minutes, Buster? <laughs> no, you can't. So <laughs> don't do it. So right. Well, so I'm going to, my next question was, we, you know, we have people of all ages listening to the, to the podcast. So what advice would you give to young people who are thinking about following in your footsteps and going into sort of the behavioral sciences? What advice would you give them? Well, the most important piece of advice is how to select your graduate school. Uh, I did, I did the right thing and that I accidentally got exposed to the best place I could have possibly studied. And then instead of choosing this, you know, department with a much greater history, that the psychology department at Harvard and the greater university and so on, I decided to go work with the person who was, I was told, was the best person to work with in the country. I think it's rare for students to make their choices that way. These days, it's worse than it's ever been. Because they go on the internet and they look mm. up, Igor, I can tell you that there was a particular person at Michigan who got many more students saying they wanted to work with this person in cultural psychology than either me or Shinobu Kiriyama. <laughs> Great website that this person <laughs> had. I mean, and I don't even... I don't know what a website is. I mean, I mean uh, let alone be able to construct a good one. But if this person had a wonderful website. Mm. And so students made a choice there. Mm. Well, so I've got my last question is sort of brings me to the closing part of your book when you, t you know, you bring everything right up to the minute and you, s you talk about what you're doing these days and how you spend your time. And you say, you know, reading the news, staying up, you know, that'll keep you pretty busy. There's plenty of that, but also coming up with new ideas for research. If, if only one of your good grad students was around to, to carry it forth. So any ideas that you're playing with at the moment for research that you want to share with the world? Now's, now's the time. Yeah. Well, there are two things I think about all the time, mm. and that is we're bombarded, and this is not a remotely an original thing to be interested in, but we're bombarded by misinformation, disinformation, mm. inadequate information all the time. How would you get people to understand how to, how to process information, what, what you need to do? Mm. Uh, and I, uh, I mean, right. we desperately need that. 
I mean, no one's immune these days. I mean, mm. uh, Igor, there's a guy you know very well <laughs> who recently said to me, you know, Michigan's Department of Psychology is only number 10. I said, where the hell did you get that idea? <laughs> and I, so if you look up psychology department's reputations, just to do that, the thing, one of the things that comes up first is somebody listing the the, the, the departments of psychology in order mm-hmm. of their quality. Not too surprisingly for somebody who's totally ignorant, it's Harvard, Princeton, Yale, and that order, mm-hmm. <laughs> all the way down to Michigan, number 10. I mean, so, and this, there's no label there. We don't know who came, a guy came up with these ratings. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where, <laughs> so, and this is, this is a, not just a PhD. This is one of the smartest PhDs around mm. uh, who didn't bother to look at what the source of mm. was. Of that. Mm. It wasn't that important to him. So, like, yeah, right. Presumably, he would have done a better job if it had been. Mm. So, that's one thing. The other thing uh, that uh, I think about all the time there was a, an editorial recently in the Wall Street Journal. And by the way, apropos of information, <laughs> I recommend if you're a liberal, Read the Wall Street Journal or the equivalent in, in mm. Britain. Uh, and uh, if you're a conservative, read the New York Times. Right. Uh, and there's a, my favorite uh, editorialist at the Wall Street Journal is Peggy Noonan, who was Ronald Reagan's chief okay. speechwriter. Okay. And she recently had a column where she said, if you think that what happened on January 6th in the Capitol, Mm. was not a big deal. You've given up on democracy. Mm. And uh, it's been clear to me, I mean, ever since, you know, Trump was nominated for president, I realized, you know, people people don't understand what democracy is about, that Mm. they could elect somebody like that. I mean, just, we stopped teaching civics in this country, basically, Mm. uh, in high school. Uh, a long time ago. I think very few kids get it. I mean, mm. they don't know the difference between democracy and, as Winston Churchill said, all those others. So how to make young people understand what democracy is and how to recognize autocracy when it rears its ugly heads. Uh, that's what I would love to be able to do. Dick, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Sure. I had a great time, as you can probably tell. <laughs> Thanks, Dick. And that was another episode of the On Wisdom podcast with a special guest, Richard Nisbet. Quite an interview, part an autobiographical retrospective, and part a review of some psychological insights. I'm curious what you think about it. We talked about seeing associations and correlations where they may be or where they may not be, and how we may be prepared to seeing patterns even though there are no patterns in reality how people often make erroneous inferences from single observations. We talked about awareness and lack of awareness of mental processes, cultural differences in perceptions of the world, and whether it is useful to conduct job interviews. According to Nisbet, they're quite useless. In case you like this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues on social media and recommend them to subscribe to the On Wisdom podcast. It is onwisdompodcast.com. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, be it topics or guests, please let us know. Thank you for listening and be well.